Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. Governments are adopting new surveillance technology around the world, but the public is mostly unaware and few laws appropriately address the use of these new technologies. The proliferation of these technologies, if unrestrained, could have profound implications for democracy and human rights. Today, we will talk to Steve Feldstein, an associate professor and the Franken-Bethine Church Chair of Public Affairs at Boise State University. Steve is also a former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department. He'll discuss his research with regard to how AI-powered surveillance technology is being deployed around the world and how we can ensure that that deployment is consistent with democratic values. Steve, you recently issued a report that identifies the ways in which surveillance technologies are being deployed around the world, especially new surveillance technologies dependent on artificial intelligence. What was the most surprising thing that came out of your research? Yeah, thanks for the question, Amy. Um, you know, it was a pretty labor-intensive effort. It took a number of months to kind of get this together. And really, it's something that's still ongoing in, in the sense that things are changing pretty quickly uh, uh, because, you know, given how much this is an emerging technology. But, you know, a couple of things surprised me uh, about when it came to the results that I found. Uh, one is that I didn't anticipate there would be so many countries that this type of advanced technology had spread to in a relatively short amount of time. 75 countries out of 176 that uh, I surveyed. So really, I looked at every country around the world above a population of 250,000. And so of the 176, I found uh, evidence uh, within 75 of them that they were accessing a, a certain type of advanced surveillance, uh, whether it's facial recognition or smart policing or a safe city. And that was a really, it was a much larger number than I thought. That to me sort of, uh, I think, shows just how much countries, uh, whether they're democracies or, or autocracies, whether they're in you know, uh, a more developed region or whether they're uh, somewhere else, there's a large amount of take up no matter where they are. Now, so that was one thing. I think the second thing that also surprised me was that I didn't expect to see democracies in particular, liberal democracies, particularly uh, in regions like Europe, uh, take up uh, AI surveillance capabilities to such a large extent. Uh, in fact, I found the greatest proportion, uh, if you kind of break down by regime score, I found that liberal democracies were more likely to take up AI surveillance than any other type of regime. I wondered if you would say that was one of the surprising findings in the report. I assume part of it has to do just with having the budget to uh, access these sorts of technologies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and I started looking to all sorts of different correlations to kind of figure out, well, what exactly was, you know, the, the relationship that made the most sense. And it isn't necessarily that a rich country is, is, is going to access more of this technology. Uh, that actually breaks down a little bit. What it was is that I found was that the relative investment in the military was kind of the common denominator when it came to countries also taking up AI surveillance. And so as it happens that a lot of countries in Western Europe uh, do invest a significant amount, whether it's you know via the NATO alliance or otherwise, uh, in military capabilities. And so there seemed to be kind of a, uh, a relationship in that way. Why did you feel like you needed to write this report? What is it? I know you've, you've written about this other places. What is it about this suite of technologies that is new and different? I mean, there's been surveillance, like really extensive surveillance states for many years in many countries. 
Yeah, that's right. It's a good point. And, and you know, surveillance as a technique that the Stasi used, that the KGB used, I mean, these are all things that are pretty strongly ingrained in terms of how our intelligence services and security services operate. You know, but I think for me, what was uh, important to kind of probe this subject is that you're seeing a suite of technologies uh, that are very cutting edge, that offer capabilities we've only imagined up uh, until recently uh, that are sort of sweeping through. And I think there's a lot of hyperbole when it comes to actually understanding what the effect of these technologies are and who's using them. Uh, and so part of what I wanted to do was map out in a much more granular way where these, how these technologies are spreading and what countries are spreading to. Uh, but partially what I also wanted to do was add a little bit of, you know, kind of evidence-based realism to the conversation and dialogue taking place about what the effect of facial recognition is and, you know, what role do companies from China, for example, play when it comes to disseminating this type of technology and where is it happening? To me, there was a lot of unanswered questions regarding uh, this area and that I thought was deserving of more analysis. I think there has been a lot of concern sort of in the people who work on supporting democracy around the world, people focused on human rights, regarding allegations that Chinese firms are selling this technology in a way that where they're also providing sort of technical services to enable it to be used for repression. What did your research actually show about that? Yeah, well, th that's been, and that was sort of, you know, one of the big questions I really tried to delve into. It is true uh, that Chinese companies are very active in this space and that not only are they aggressively sort of marketing surveillance capabilities around the world, but they're doing it in countries that have troubling records when it comes to human rights. So places like Uganda, countries in Central Asia, Pakistan, you know, these are all places where I think there's a strong reluctance, especially from Western firms, when it comes to selling and operating equipment that can surveil citizens and uh, enhance the power of, of the police. But uh, a lot of Chinese companies seem to be pretty uh, firmly moving ahead in these markets, uh, notwithstanding all those concerns. And so that was certainly one aspect to that that I saw. But, you know, I, I don't think that also was the, the full story, that even while we're seeing a pretty strong move uh, forward by Chinese companies, uh, I was also surprised to find, uh, you know, a whole set uh, of other companies that are manufacturing involved in the space that are non-Chinese, that come from, that oftentimes are headquartered in Western, you know, democracies, including the United States, but, you know, many other places as well. So companies that are based in Israel is a big place, location, France, uh, you know, Spain, uh, Japan, uh, and so forth. And so, you know, one of the interesting aspects here is that not only is it a pretty dynamic field in the sense that new companies are entering the market and, and others are, uh, you know, sort of expanding their market share, uh, but it's pretty diverse in terms of where companies actually originate from. Uh, and so it is, I think, more than just a China spreading advanced technology story when it comes to how this area is evolving. Yeah, no, I think that came out pretty clearly from the data. There were other companies from other countries that also are selling this sort of technology, sometimes to countries with somewhat troubling uh, human rights and democracy records. Yeah. And, and you know, one point I want to make on, on Huawei is Huawei is kind of an interesting case for me because on the one hand, in terms of the sourcing I was able to access in putting together uh, this index, you know, Huawei sourcing by far uh, was higher than any other company there. And so that alone seems to point to greater, you know, uh, activity by Huawei in this field than most other their companies. But 
you know, again, that's where some of the methodology and data collection uh, constraints come in, uh, in the sense that, you know, I was following the sources that were available that I could find. Uh, and it happens that Huawei seems to have a strong interest in promoting its capabilities in this area. And so does that necessarily mean that Huawei is far and beyond the most active company than any other one combined? Well, I'm not so sure, but you know, many other companies who are active uh, try to be a lot more discreet, are not trying to advertise in, in a bigger way uh, what they're doing, have confidentiality agreements with governments. And we're just not able as re outside researchers to access that data. So there's a lot that we don't know, and we just have to make assumptions based on what we're able to collect from open source documentation. But that, I think, shows you where some of the limitations in a very nascent field are, uh, and that even the Huawei um, you know, shows up so much uh, in comparison to other companies, there is a, a, another sort of story there that's harder to untangle. Right. I think another interesting question is, at least from my perspective, one of the concerns about Huawei and some similar companies is, are they just selling the technology or are they actually really providing specific know-how on how to, how to use it uh, in ways that are maybe not good for democracy? Did you find examples of other companies providing that kind of ongoing servicing in a way that was really concerning from a human rights perspective? Well, it's a really good question. And certainly there have been a number of investigative reports that uh, showcase how Huawei provides consultants on the ground to help operate the equipment and ensure that it's uh, accomplishing what police forces and others expect it to accomplish. And so in countries like, uh, you know, Uganda, uh, for example, you know, Serbia, uh, Zambia, uh, Algeria, and some other places, there's a lot, there's a growing amount of evidence that, you know, Huawei has a lot of people on the ground who are sort of helping uh, in, that, in that regard. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of data when it comes to knowing whether other companies are are following that model, my sense would be, given how complicated this technology is and how in many of these countries there's just a lower level of capacity when it comes to knowing how to properly uh, you know, work with, with different algorithms to collect data uh, uh, in a way that helps to accomplish surveillance purposes, that there probably is uh, a significant amount of technical support that uh, companies have to provide no matter where they're from. That seems likely as well, right? Because you have to be able to actually use the technology. Right. You know, I mean, part of what I, I think makes the Chinese model um, troubling uh, is that, you know, unlike sort of a kind of more of a sort of purely capitalist or private sector kind of uh, strategy, I mean, you really see a strong integration when it comes to the peddling of Huawei par uh, products between the Chinese government, uh, state subsidies, uh, and the actual acquisition of these products. So if you look at a place like Uganda, uh, oftentimes there's a very pretty strong confluence between uh, low-interest loans that the Chinese government will provide to the Ugandans to purchase this equipment uh, on the condition that they actually get it from a Chinese supplier. Uh, and so you have both encouragement, you have the resource outlay from the Chinese government to allow this acquisition to occur, and then you actually have the purchasing from Huawei uh, that, that takes place. And so there is a bit of an ecosystem here. It's not just Huawei kind of going out on its own uh, and using its market power uh, or market incentives to get countries to purchase this equipment. There's often as a very strong yet hidden uh, hand when it comes to the Chinese state and its involvement as well in these deals. I was thinking about, you know, one of the reasons this technology I think is so concerning is that it just makes surveillance very cheap. If you're also getting government loans to, to purchase it, then uh, it becomes even cheaper uh, and, and easier to deploy. On a different note, Steve, I just wanted to turn a little bit more to 
what policy conclusions can, can come out of your research and related research. I mean, one thing that you say, and I would tend to agree, is that you know we, in theory, should feel better about the democracies that are using this sort of capability because they should have rule of law and the capacity to oversee it. But is that really the case? I mean, here in the U.S., we keep hearing of instances of government use of facial recognition that you know, it doesn't really appear that there are laws that govern it, period. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a good point. Um, I mean, I think my thought is that at least you're able to have a debate about how it's used, that there are you know, existing measures of accountability built into the rule of law so that when cases of abuse uh, are uncovered, uh, that you can find ways to redress those abuses and, and provide correctives for the future. Uh, I mean, no one is implementing and using this technology, uh, I think, in a perfect way. There are lots of missteps that are taking place. Uh, the comfort I have in terms of democracies experimenting with this is that, you know, there's enough freedom of expression uh, so that you can have proper investigations uh, and, and scrutiny uh, from outside actors, whether it's journalists or researchers or others, to try to improve and, and correct the worst methods. In places that are autocracies where there isn't a traditional rule of law, where free expression, freedom of free expression is suppressed anyway, um, it's almost impossible. I mean, uh, so much of the power is tilted uh, towards the state that it makes it almost impossible for individuals to, to fight back. Uh, you, know, China, you know, how this technology is being used in China is probably an extreme example, uh, but it also is one that I think is serving as a model uh, for many other countries. But, you know, the uh, examples that we see of facial recognition being deployed fairly widely with very few safeguards, if any, uh, there, uh, either in terms of false positives or just in terms of how this data is used and what form uh, by government actors is extremely disturbing and unsettling. Uh, and so, you know, at least with democracies, you feel like there's an, a potential to push back uh, and to bring more transparency to an area that uh, people are still trying to figure out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think obviously at least having the ability to have the discussion is really, really important. I just feel like we're a long ways from having a governance structure here in the U.S. that's really adequate uh, or that's evolved to take into account emerging technologies or, or technologies that in fact have emerged. So we have a project that we're starting to work on on facial recognition and human rights. And one of my questions, I was this is somewhat self-serving. Uh, did you find any models you thought that were quite good for governance for facial recognition or smart cities when you're doing your research? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it was that wasn't a sort of a a primary question that I was asking as part of the report. So I didn't really look hard for it, but I also didn't nothing uh, sort of stuck out at me uh, as something that we ought to adopt and emulate, like at least at first glance. Now I do think that that kind of given in general, uh, where a number of European countries are, both in terms of their, you know, norms of protecting privacy uh, and other just, I think, having a, a higher public awareness of the nature of how this technology can be abused, uh, I, I do think that there are movements afoot, mostly out of Europe, that are worth watching and thinking about how they may apply uh, in other uh, countries, in other contexts, including the United States. Uh, but I also think that it, it's kind of fairly early enough in the in the game right now that nothing has really kind of uh, coalesced quite yet uh, that is probably ripe for adoption, which is why I think it's a very important area for folks like yourself to, you know, really study and think about and offer models that can be, uh, you know, pursued. Yeah, and I've been thinking about, you know, how much can we learn from, you know, we obviously have laws that do govern surveillance in certain ways in this country, but I think... 
I suspect they will only be partially translatable to some of these new technologies. Yeah, no, I think obviously like you can sort of, you look at sort of like FISA and there's just such a strong amount of new, you know, it really requires, I think, a new framework because just the notion of what privacy is is, is shifted so dramatically uh, in the way that, you know, online tools are kind of now filtering through our, our lives in, in totally unforeseen manners, I think means that the regulatory approach also needs to kind of catch up to that. And, and so far, I think we've been lagging pretty significantly. I agree. So I want to turn to a different actor that could have an impact also on how these technologies are either responsibly or irresponsibly deployed. So business obviously also has a role in determining who they sell to, what they sell to them, what safeguards they build in, etc. And I was wondering, just as you conducted this research, if you ended up having any thoughts on, you know, businesses that purport to be responsible, what what could they be doing to make us feel confident that they're not, uh, well, first of all, involved in, let's say, surveilling dissidents in some country or political opponents. And then second of all, you know, what are they doing with my face, for example? Did it occur to you sort of what some of the safeguards might be as you were doing the research? I certainly have thought a lot about the way that this technologies like this are being abused. And, you know, it's interesting that, um, I mean, what we're really talking about, whether it's your face or whether it's your other sorts of biometric data, I mean, we're talking about your data and how that's politically exploited right, for autocratic countries, or whether economically exploited in terms of selling off your information uh, so that uh, advertisers can capitalize on what they know about you. It's unregulated and exploited all around the world, starting with U.S. tech companies in pretty disturbing ways. I mean, one way you could do, you could sort of do this is like a reverse engineer and essentially say, given how bad things are right now, how would you implement something that was almost the opposite of what you see? And I think there's some core principles uh, that companies, you know, ought to, ought to think more about. I mean, one of them is just transparency about how your data is being used. So whether that's your data via a social media platform like Facebook uh, or Twitter in terms of how your data is mined and exploited and sold off, uh, or whether it's, you know, your image that's captured and then used in, in different ways, you know, there ought to be transparency that companies uh, enforce, you know, rules of the road that sort of say, here's what we will do, here's what we won't. Uh, and here's how it may be uh, uh, sold. Do you think people should be able to opt out? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it ought to probably be more of a real choice than either you sign this kind of long consent form uh, with language that you don't understand and then you get access to the platform, right, or, or to the technology, or, you know, you don't sign and, you, and you're completely cut off. That's a kind of one way, if, if that's sort of like something that you're sort of buying into that you want. I mean, the other way of opt out is sort of uh, in a public space. Do you have a right to sort of say, I don't want this facial recognition camera in the stadium uh, capturing uh, and holding my image? That gets a lot more complicated for a number of reasons. Yeah, for sure. I think the public security piece versus the private company use of this sort of data is, they're both really important to, to sort of identify the right safeguards, but they're probably different safeguards uh, because there's different interests at stake. Yeah, I think the other question for me is always trying to make sure that consumers don't have to do too much work. I feel like with privacy right now, right, G- like with the GDPR in Europe, so now you go on a site and you, you know, you can either just accept all the cookies or you can do a lot of reading and research, right, to kind of fine tune it. Um, so I think that's another piece is like being transparent in a way that's actually usable by normal people. Yeah, you know what's interesting, too, is that it's not as if companies aren't aware of kind of human characteristics when they design 
consent forms and other ways to figure out how to essentially get you to give up your data while making it really hard for you to push back and not allow it to happen. Uh, you know, it, it's it's actually something that uh, is built directly into the architecture of platforms and other other types of technologies where they create a lot of friction uh, when it comes to actually giving consumers real choice about how their data is used. And so it's little wonder that, you know, all of a sudden we're kind of living in this capitalist surveillance, you know, type of model because that's essentially how it's been designed. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of like, you know, I think the code of conduct or, or bringing about, I mean, it's not just safeguards, it's actually kind of re-engineering in some ways what the, the essential bargain is between consumers and technology companies when it comes to data uh, and not allowing such a skewed architecture to be put in place in the first place so that saying no is so hard or limiting data becomes so laborious that you just end up giving up and saying, ah, I'm not going to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is a real challenge um, in terms of giving consumers real choice. We'll see where companies get on that. Going one level further, I think the other issue you bring up in your work is around Internet of Things or IoT and just the fact that normal civilians, your neighbor down the street, could decide to capture your face and have it connected to criminal databases to see if you're going to rob him. I mean, it just feels very Wild West-like to me in the sense that it's not just the government. It's not even companies per se, right? It's also the individuals now can start capturing this sort of information and having it fed into databases to get information that they think somehow improves their lives. There's a couple like, you know, kind of points of vulnerability. So uh, as someone whose face is captured, if you ring on a neighbor's door uh, doorbell by their ring camera system, one point of vulnerability is, you know, do you consent to have your face captured and put in a database as well? A second point of vulnerability is a person who owns the ring system themselves, right? Do they know these images that are captured, where they're being stored? Do they know who, which types of law enforcement agencies are accessing them? Do they know how long those images will uh, remain and stay accessed? Do they know who those law enforcement agencies might share them with? It's very opaque uh, in terms of what the rules are, and it probably changes by jurisdiction and even by, um, by moment. Uh, and, and two, there's just very little regulation when it comes to uh, actually sort of determining uh, usage uh, in any kind of form. And so I think, you know, you're right. Like, it is a wild west. And the rules are being made up as we go along. But what we know about something like that is with a high capability and low rules, that sort of is the formula for abuse and, and violations. And that's kind of, unfortunately, some of the scenarios we're starting to see. Yeah, and I think another piece of that puzzle is also where is this data stored and how secure is it? Because biometric data, it's not like changing your password, right? It's your biometrics. Right. I mean, it, it sort of seems to me that uh, the idea of having any kind of data that's, you know, relatively secure seems more and more like a myth, you know, that uh, even sort of sites that uh, claim to have encryption or whatnot, now that we have the advent of quantum computing, uh, I mean, who even knows like whether it's going to be possible to really and truly store your information in an encrypted way. I mean, I know personally that, you know, between the OMB hack a few years back that stole, you know, my personal information, including social security uh, numbers and other sorts of hacks that, that I've been, you know, uh, prone to that, you know, my information is out there and I feel like you have very little control over kind of taking that back. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge going forward, and it's hard to know how quantum computing will affect that in particular. Maybe there is a question around what, what is our 
expected level of privacy and how do we at least reclaim that as much as we can. There is concern about sort of, you know, is China using technology and surveillance as it gets deployed around the world to sort of foster like-minded countries, right, as they sort of talk about alternative governance approaches. One thing I've just started thinking about is how is the U.S., to the extent we provide security assistance, you know, law enforcement assistance, et cetera, to other countries, as we start engaging with governments that do have access to this advanced technology, what are we telling them about how to deploy it, right? Are we encouraging practices that are more conducive to democracy or not? Have you thought about that, or did you find any information on that front? Yeah, I, you know, this, it's a really good question. And in many countries where we have kind of longstanding engagement, uh, you know, you also see kind of, you know, uh, newer Chinese partnerships, and, and you're seeing kind of a, you know, a bit of a muddle when it comes to kind of who is dictating what and and where this will all go. I mean, a good case in point is I took a trip to the Philippines, a uh, research trip uh, earlier this year, uh, the Philippines is a place where, you know, longstanding uh, U.S. military ally, uh, but increasingly under uh, their president, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, more of an embrace of China, including uh, a big embra- embra- new embrace of surveillance technology. Uh, and there's a program called Safe Philippines where they're trying to uh, establish via Huawei 12,000 cameras around Metro Manila uh, for surveillance. So, you know, there you have several different levels, right, of um, both geopolitics in terms of kind of a a bit of a struggle between the U.S. and China uh, there. Uh, you have different types of technology that are being used by the government in different ways, and they're sort of playing off both countries. Um, have they sort of, have we asserted to them what's necessary in terms of safeguards? I don't think we have. Um, but then again, we don't exactly know what it is that they're completely getting from the Chinese either and where that'll go. And we haven't really even determined what the red lines are. So for example, the Chinese into the Philippines uh, just came in to uh, get the the third major telecom license that was just issued. So they went in with a Filipino partner. Well, that to me is right goes right along with the whole five G question that we have in countries around the world in the sense of Chinese encroachment on critical uh, ICT infrastructure and what that might mean uh, for uh, vulnerabilities for U.S. allies. Uh, and yet we are seeing this happen, whether it's in the Philippines or whether it's in other countries uh, around the world. And that I think makes for many, many questions with answers we don't quite completely have yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, th- I think it's something we need to be thinking about, particularly in terms of making sure that at least our government's acting in ways that are aligned with our historical values. Uh, I just haven't heard that conversation happening in this particular space. So one of my concerns around these technologies is, at least in the U.S., I just don't think people are very conscious of the risks. And I'm thinking also about commercial applications. You know, Do you use your face to unlock your phone or not? You know, do you decide to give up that data? You know, do you board an airplane using uh, facial recognition, et cetera? Uh, do you think that the situation in Hong Kong, the use of face masks there, the law against it, et cetera, has helped spread awareness to sort of a more general population about some of the risks to democracy that come with this technology? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm glad that you raised that uh, because I, I do think that you know the ongoing situation in Hong Kong has sort of sharpened the edges of the debate when it comes to how this technology can be misused, even in places that ostensibly have a tradition of democratic practices. Uh, you know, obviously, Hong Kong is unique in terms of its political system, but I think it shows you that where you know you have a society where there's been a, a very strong relationship between the police and its citizens, and I think less of concern that there would be 
police brutality uh, and that faces would be used to identify protesters so that they could be locked up, detained, possibly other other things. I think that was something that uh, in Hong Kong people didn't really think would, would happen. And now we're seeing this, this specific technology being used in connection with very repressive methods. And so it ought to be a wake-up call to people that even if you live in a system that feels very democratic and you believe have a lot of has a lot of safeguards, uh, things can change very quickly. You know, this technology uh, has a very dangerous capability to it to uh, to really do things. Uh, you know, on behalf of the uh, sponsoring government that can directly lead to human rights abuses uh, and other sorts of uh, concerns. So, so yeah, I I I would hope that. Whether it's Hong Kong or there's a myriad of other examples uh, of countries where you're seeing this kind of same dynamic play out around the world, uh, you know, technology uh, is as much a tool for political mobilization, you know, of, of protesters and demonstrators as it is a tool these days uh, for governments to enact control and surveillance uh, and other uh, sorts of purposes. And we have to be very cognizant of both sides of that as we think about you know, what the rules of the road should be when it comes to potential abuse. Technology has been incredibly useful for organizations and people around the world who are trying to get organized or try to get a message out or access greater opportunities of freedom of expression or information. So there is definitely, of course, an upside. I think, I think in a way, we're all now coming to grips with the fact that there is a downside, uh, which for a long time we didn't maybe see so clearly. And now, of course, we're very focused on all the negatives because that's the new information coming out. But it, it is a balance uh, in trying to really make sure that we enable the good and address the bad. Right. And, and, you know, both oftentimes happen simultaneously, right? So even as we're seeing kind of we live in this like current disinformation, social manipulation environment, uh, and all the talk, you know, is about how governments are manipulating narratives to convince citizens of things that, um, they, that you know, an open society uh, would never allow. Uh, and yet, even in some of these types of disinformation-oriented, repressive environments, we're still seeing people organize uh, quietly, come out on the streets, uh, and use social media and other related tools uh, to push back against government. So... You know, this, the, the, the story isn't liberation tech, which we once thought it was. The story may not fully be digital repression, which is kind of where a lot of our thinking now is. But it is a bit of a struggle and a back, back and forth between both sides. And how things evolve uh, is an open question. Well, on a lighter note, on the note of innovation and creativity, have you read some of the articles about the different technologies that are being used to foil facial recognition? There's been some innovation on that front, too, and some of it's kind of entertaining. Yeah, no, it's neat. It's nice to see that kind of innovation and creativity uh, take place as well. And I mean, it does show you that, you know, nothing, especially in this field, nothing's static, right? Just as you think either a government has kind of come up with all the answers or, you know, they've come upon an app that's like the perfect uh, tool for mobilizing, uh, you know, someone else comes up uh, with a flaw, flaw or a workaround or, a, or some kind of hack. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, the assumptions go out the window and everyone's kind of back to the drawing board, figuring out how they best use this technology to accomplish their purposes. So it does seem like uh, it's very fluid uh, in that sense. I think that's right. The challenge is that legislating is very hard when technology moves at such a rapid pace, which maybe is a reason to have more of a principled-based approach to it. Yeah, I mean, you need a little bit of everything, right? You need to have kind of individual agency. Uh, so people ought to kind of be 
cognizant of responsible use and you know how you ought to kind of operate and work with certain types of technologies. You ought to have companies that have kind of their own voluntary kind of codes of conduct that at least have minimum standards in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. And then you ought to have like a regulatory framework as well that can provide further guidance and, and enforcement uh, when needed to kind of keep things uh, on the on the straight level. And you kind of, you know, it's all like a bit of a balance when it comes to this ecosystem. But right now, things are so out of whack and that there is no regulatory structure. I think individuals are very confused as to like what the rules and the norms ought to be. And I think companies uh, are taking advantage uh, of, this kind of, of this fluidity uh, by oftentimes exploiting in very serious, disturbing ways uh, how they use these technologies to collect personal information and monetize it and do other sorts of things. Uh, and so when the system's out of whack, uh, you know, it's not only bad for consumers from an economic point of view, uh, I think it's bad for democracy. Uh, and that's uh, in large part what we've seen in many countries around the world. Good points today. And thank you so much for providing a lot of the data that we need to better understand what's happening in the first place. It also helps us understand what we don't know uh, and then maybe what we can do about it. So thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me. This is the start of just a much longer conversation and a lot of work for many of us, right, when it comes to really trying to unpack and better figure out where things go. I mean, I think the good news is we're not that far along, and there's a lot of smart people trying to gauge and, and figure out this issue. So hopefully we can, we can do a little better than we have uh, in, the, in the last few years uh, when it comes to responsible use and you know, really establishing the right kind of ethical framework uh, to guide uh, how these technologies will operate. I agree. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Steve. Really appreciate your time. You got it. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at CSIS.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too. Thank you.